This is Nate Laux, and you're listening to the Summer Friends Podcast. Joining me on today's podcast is former mayor of LaPorte, Lee Morris. Lee has been a friend of mine for a few years now. It was an honor to have him with me at State Street to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. So we talked about everything. We talked about the selling of the Indiana Toll Road. We talked about the time when Lee won the mayoral election in LaPorte. We talked about the time he lost a mayoral election in LaPorte. We talked about Lee's appreciation for the Oregonian healthcare system and his belief in the right to die. We talked about political civility. And Lee even turned it around on me to talk about the diminishing authority of religious leaders in the public sphere. This is a great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And if you do, please share it. I hope you enjoy today's episode with my friend, your new summer friend, Lee Morris. You're not from LaPorte, are you? No, originally from a little town called Hartford City, Indiana, over between Muncie and Fort Wayne on eastern Indiana, in eastern Indiana. My father was an electrician. I owned a little electrical contracting company. He died when I was seven years old. And my mother then continued the business uh, uh, for a few years. After that, I went to International Business College in Fort Wayne for two years after I graduated from high school. And I worked as, uh, I started working when I was 12. 12 years old. I, I worked in the, my mother's electrical contracting store. She had a retail operation there. And then I worked in a hardware store. And then I worked in a filling station. I did a number of different things. Uh, went uh, After I graduated from high school, I went to a business college in Fort Wayne for two years. Then I came back to the hardware store where I had worked and became their office manager and, and uh, controller for about two years before I said, gee, I really needed to have a college education. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to Ball State University and finish my undergraduate degree there. And after uh, Ball State, I was uh, uh, drafted into the Army. I had a terrific opportunity to, uh, after uh, basic training. I, I don't want to date you, mm-hmm. But when, what era was this? Well, I graduated from high school in 1952. Okay. I graduated from Ball State University in 1958. Um, I went into the Army immediately after graduating from Ball State. Had two years in the Army. I had the great opportunity after basic training of being selected to be go into training for the uh, Counterintelligence Corps and ended up being stationed in Baltimore, Maryland, of all places, as a liaison representative for Headquarters 5th Army with the U.S. Army Intelligence Center. So what kind of things did you do there? Uh, uh, I was involved with a lot of uh, record uh, evaluation, determining who had security clearances, what the issues and problems might be, whatever the 5th Army needed in the way of intelligence information, I and two other people who were a part of the liaison office uh, had the responsibility to do that. I also had the opportunity, because I became involved a little bit, the, the Fort Hollabird, which was where I was stationed, had a uh, theater, little theater group. And I'm kind of a ham, so I had the opportunity to appear in a few uh, productions that they had. And the U.S. Army Intelligence Service had a demonstration team. And I had the opportunity then to serve on that demonstration team in Washington, helping to train people uh, in intelligence situations for the So a demonstration team, essentially you're acting out situations. Acting out, role playing, yeah. I had the interesting time of uh, (laughs) sort of developing some some special uh, inflections. You know, <laughs> so then you would be given these scripts, or did yeah. you help devise this? You no, know, basically they gave you a situation, and you had to kind of work out what the script would be. So conversational uh, language, you had to kind of think through and provide for yourself. How long did you do this for? I was only in for two years. Now, then when I finished the army, I had the opportunity to join Borg Warner Corporation in Muncie, Indiana. I was in labor relations with them for three years. 
Then I went with International Harvester in Fort Wayne, ultimately became the personnel manager for the Fort Wayne operations of uh, International Harvester, the big truck plant and parts distribution center and so on. But the longer I was in doing that, the more I questioned whether that was really what I wanted to spend the rest of my life on. Uh, in the meantime, I'd Got married, Marsha, my wife. So did you meet Marsha while you were doing International Harvester? Mm, well, yeah, I was with International Harvester, and I happened to have really good friends that left no, le lived next door to Marsha's brother and sister in Fort Wayne. And they were concerned that I was past 30 years old, not married <laughs> yet, and so was Marsha. And it was about time we got together, so they arranged a triple date. So it, it turned out that uh, shortly after we met each other in Fort Wayne, uh, I was transferred to Chicago uh, and ended up heading the inter the college recruiting service for International Harvester Company. You know, the more I spent time with International Harvester, I had a great career and I, I had wonderful opportunities, but it wasn't what I wanted to spend my life doing. And I'd always been sort of interested in healthcare. And the more I thought about it, the more I decided maybe I, that's where I needed to go. Uh, Marsha was willing to support me as I went back to graduate school at age 33, I believe it was. Where'd you go? Internet to the University of Minnesota and uh, earned my master's degree there. And uh, after graduating, I had the opportunity to become the chief executive of Huntington Memorial Hospital in Huntington, Indiana. Loved it there. We had a wonderful time there. Then had the opportunity uh, in 1978 to become the president and CEO of Laporte Hospital. And that's a job I held for 21 wonderful years. What would you say then? Because you, you, it sounds like you kept on kind of following some career paths and mm -hmm. finding out that's just not what you wanted to do. Because yeah. there's only, I feel like there's only one way to figure out whether or not you want to do something. It's trying it, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. It's a fairly common, I think, things for a lot of my friends or just younger people that I know. What kind of encouragement would you give them that are kind of in the same thing? I'd say follow your heart and make sure you know what you want to spend the rest of your life doing. was it about healthcare administration? You know, a lot of people talk about the doctors wanting yeah. to actually get in there and fix people. But for you, it was the, the healthcare administration that really brought you out of these other careers. What, what well, was it? Healthcare administration as such probably doesn't have a lot of redeeming value, but it's what we do that enables other people to, to do the great things that healthcare is capable of. I, I never took care of a single patient during the time I was uh, the CEO of Laporte Hospital. But my work was intended to make it possible for others to do the great things that mm -hmm. they were capable of. So for you, it was about wanting to create the right cultures mm -hmm. so that good healthcare can be achieved. Exactly right. You know, Laporte Hospital had gone through an interesting time. It was uh, the first merger uh, known of a Catholic hospital and a non-Catholic hospital when Holy Family Hospital and Community Hospital merged in 1966. Then uh, they operated the two hospitals under one management from 1966 until 1972. Laporte Hospital was completed in 1972. It was arguably the first hospital in the country to have all private room. After the, the coming together, of the two hospitals and the building of the new one, it kind of just sort of stagnated. And so my opportunity was to really bring it to life. Was there still kind of two different cultures? Did they have a shared culture yet? There was still uh, some residual from two different hospitals. But, you know, gradually we overcame that and we had the opportunity to begin to really build Laporte Hospital into what it ultimately became, which I believe is a preeminent regional hospital. Now, the hospital CEO although they're responsible for everything, really have almost no control over the medical staff, who in turn have a lot of control over the employees who theoretically report to the CEO. Uh, you know, my management uh, professors tell me, well, that's a prescription for failure. That couldn't work, but it does work. But in that process, a hospital CEO has to do a lot of things that don't necessarily satisfy all the constituencies that he has to serve. Sometimes he has to make physicians unhappy. I remember when I, I insisted upon installing the first computed tomography, CT unit at Laporte Hospital. I did it over the objections of virtually every member of the medical staff. 
Was it just a new technology? That it was they a new technology. Learn? They didn't think we needed it. They didn't think it was important. We shouldn't have it. And it was so much fun later on to have those physicians come back to me and said, gosh, I'm glad you did that. We, we wouldn't want to be without it today. Is sometimes you have to think forward enough for your whole team. Exactly right. And, you know, I have such respect for physicians, but physicians don't always have the picture of what's needed outside of their practice areas. And it's up to a hospital CEO and a hospital board to help uh, overcome that and to help see that it's uh, important for the community to progress in different ways. You came in 1979. Eight. Or eight, mm-hmm. rather. What was the state of the hospital then? We had a great new building that had been completed in 1972, and basically things kind of stopped there. Employee turnover was a huge problem. The year before I came, the employee turnover was 78%, which meant that three out of every four jobs had turned over that year. And there was such a a feeling of, we accomplished a great thing in building the new hospital. We don't need to do anything else. Things sort of stopped in 1972. I know one year, the the total capital expenditure for the hospital was $7,800 for one EKG machine. And they argued for three months uh, before they were willing to spend that money. And my job was to say, wait a minute, things are moving forward in healthcare, and we have to be a part of the moving forward. We can't be yesterday's hospital. We got to be tomorrow's hospital. Do you think that was a unique problem to Laporte, or do you think just it was the state of medical care in 1978 that and, lots of changes were happening and a lot of people no, had? A- I think in many ways it was it was unique to Laporte at that time. We had two old hospitals that were really very inadequate facility-wise. They did some good things. I don't mean to demean from that, but they were old hospitals that were very out of date. And finally, the community had come together and created this great new hospital, but we hadn't really thought beyond having created that new hospital. How does it need to evolve now to really meet the needs of the community? So explain, uh, just in case anybody that's listening doesn't know, what a tremendous uh, history Laporte has in medical education. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, the the Indiana Medical College, which was a part of Laporte University, formed in 1847. That was the first medical school west of Cleveland, Ohio, in this country. Uh, It graduated uh, about a 1,000 physicians during the time it existed. And, of course, among those was Dr. William Worrell Mayo, who, along with his two sons, Charles and William Mayo, formed the Mayo Clinic. Uh, The faculty of the Laporte University Medical School was was tremendous. They came from all over the country to teach here. Uh, So many positive things about it. This was the first medical school to have a microscope for teaching purposes in this area, long before they had one at Harvard. We had one in LaPorte, Indiana. So I have a feeling that maybe that that contributed to the fact that this became, through the years, an attractive place for really good, high-quality physicians to practice. What happened to the medical college? Well, the, the faculty had a few difficulties getting along with each other, you know. Uh, I'm not sure all that was involved. Uh, a sexual scandal occurred. As it does. As, as it, it does. continues today. <laughs> uh, there was a little scandal between a member of the faculty and a young lady in the community. And uh, by that time, by 1857, a number of medical schools had been established in major urban centers. Uh, Rush University in Chicago, for example. Uh, Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan, had evolved. And uh, this was not a high population area Mm -hmm. for a medical school. So the need for it in this area maybe was less. uh, And combined with a few problems of getting along with each other, they had built a marvelous new building in Laporte, which is where Lincoln School stands today, that had two wonderful teaching laboratories, large amphitheaters, uh, dissecting rooms, laboratories, thing all that you could want for a medical school in those days. Unfortunately, by 1857, it passed on. Ultimately, I think it was really responsible for the formation of Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. It went from here to uh, Greencastle, uh, part of uh, what was then Asbury College, uh, then to Indianapolis, 
and I believe it's the predecessor of Indiana University School of Medicine. There's obviously the urban legend that uh, Dr. Mayo potentially wanted to open a practice here in Laporte. Well, right? the, the story is, and there's some differences of opinion about the veracity of this, that he practiced here in Laporte and that uh, they had a terrible flu epidemic here in Laporte. Uh, and he was just totally exhausted in trying to take care of those patients. And finally, he came home one afternoon and he said to his wife, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to get in the horse and buggy and I'm going to go until I either die or get well. And when I get to where I'm going, I'll send for you. They ended up in, in Rochester, Minnesota. Now, the uh, program about the Mayo Clinic that was on uh, PBS earlier this week suggested that he was practicing in Lafayette and that it was the plague of some sort that occurred there. But the story, one way or the other, is that had we played our cards right, the Mayo Clinic might have been in Indiana rather than in Minnesota. That'd be nice, huh? Yes. <laughs> to become the mayor or did you retire and say I want to do something and I want to help somebody or do something good and let's become the mayor well what? you know I had this feeling gosh I'm 65 years old I ought to be retiring and, yeah. and so I did I loved what I was doing but I also felt that after 21 years Laporte Hospital needed new leadership different leadership I think any organization sure. benefits from that. So at 65, I did retire. I made myself a long list of things that I might do. I knew I didn't just want to sit around and do nothing. Yeah, I, knowing you well enough, that's not an option for me. <laughs> and so I began doing some of those things. And, and then uh, a few years later, the opportunity to be uh, considered for mayor of the city of Laporte came along. And I said, I'd kind of like to do that. I think I could make a difference for the city of Laporte. For people that have never ran a race, what's campaigning like? Well, the thing I probably dreaded the most was going door to door. And You're not a door knocker. You're but the not. thing I enjoyed the most was going door to door. Yeah, really. It was fantastic I, because I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity of talking to people throughout this community. And certainly it gave me a much better feel for this community. A lot of people don't get around town maybe as much. And I, I quite frankly, didn't get around town as much as I should have. And it, it really opened eyes to some issues and concerns that we have in Laporte. We have a lot of areas that are, are pretty, pretty sad. Also, we have a lot of areas where you, you, can, you can almost tell who owns property when you go door to door. Some of the people who own multiple rental properties do just a magnificent job of maintaining those properties, and you can be proud that they're there. And there's another group of, of people that own rental properties that you know who they are. You can tell by the rundown conditions and the poor maintenance and the absolute poverty that rep is represented in those areas. What were some of the issues that you were trying to highlight going into it? That, that Laporte really needed stronger, more positive leadership. That this is a great community. There's absolutely no question about that in my mind. But we're lagging behind. We're not moving forward in a way that we really could and should as a community. How do you sell that message without offending people who might say, we've been in this community forever? I really tried to show data is pretty um, devastating when you look at it. This community started a downward trek a number of years ago. The demographics, education levels, income levels, property uh, development, investment in property in the community have been declining significantly. Since when? Since uh, the early 70s or late 70s. Uh, when you wait look a second. Wait, wait, wait. Lee, when did you get here? I came in 78. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, surely I'm not the Oh, I know what you're saying, Dave. No. But no, what, what, what did it, you, what was happening in the late 70s in when, the when When you look at uh, the loss of Alice Chalmers, the loss of Whirlpool, the loss of American Home Foods, the loss of several major employers. Manufacturing. In kind of yeah. And the income levels that were possible from those employers. Uh, that's a major concern. I, when I was at the hospital, we, we did a major expansion that started in 18, uh, 1982 and completed in 84. Uh, when we completed that expansion, unemployment in Laporte was nearly 20%. 
That's yeah. when I started going to the post office every Saturday morning to try to get checks out of the mail so we could get them in the bank to mm -hmm. cover, cover mm -hmm. the checks we had written on Friday. Because it was tough, but uh, that trend has continued. For many years, Purdue University North Central published something called Econ Trends, where they compared Porter County and LaPorte County uh, on four major indicators, education levels, retail sales, manufacturing operations, and wage levels. And we started out ahead of Porter County when you went back to the beginning of, that, of those measurements. And gradually, we were trending downward, and Porter County was trending upward, and the gap kept, kept getting wider every year. And you have to ask, why is that happening? Since that time, I've, I've had a lot of opportunities to look at some other communities that have maybe similar issues. Goshen, for example. Goshen has, has prospered immensely during the time that we've been going down. We've looked at Kokomo, which was a, a, a rust bucket city. A lot of manufacturing jobs gone GM, and, and they really went down and down and down. But when you look at them today, they're really going up. And the difference is leadership. In Goshen, for example, we saw that there isn't just political leadership. The political leadership and the community leadership is knitted together. And you, you, there are on one message that Goshen is a great community that is going great places. That's something that we have some difficulty with in Laporte. I think sometimes we say, well, it's good enough. Would you say it's pessimism, cynicism, apathy? Where, where, what would you say? Maybe more apathy than, than anything else. Uh, it's not a new problem for Laporte. When, when I was, was mayor, I had the, looking at the, the files and so on, I found a report that had been done in 1982 for Mayor uh, A.J. Rumley by the, uh, the Indiana University School of Environmental and Public Affairs. They looked at the situation uh, of Laporte and, and made some comments. And, you know, one of them, the concluding comments was, Laporte will not long have the luxury of operating city government as it traditionally is done. Its financial and service delivery problems are likely to get worse rather than better. Interestingly, the guy who did the study was still around when I was mayor. So I had a mayor's advisory group that uh, worked with me when I was in office, superintendent of schools, several business leaders and community leaders and bankers and so on, and labor leaders. And so we invited the, uh, the person who did the study to come back to give us an update on what his view. And his view was basically, folks, things haven't changed very much. You're still not achieving the potential that this great community has. How do you change culture? How do you institute these kind of things that have been impulses in the community for a long time? Uh, I know people get tired of hearing me talk about planning, but I believe that it's through interactive planning that you can make major changes in the trajectory of a community. We, we had a, a whole series of facilitated planning sessions over at the Civic Auditorium where we brought people from everywhere in the community not just the business leaders and the, and the bankers and so on, but people from all walks of life, to try to look at where we are as a community and where we would like to be. What could we do to make this a, a better and better place for people to live? Through that process, I think that you can begin changing people's mindsets about not being willing to be satisfied with, well, it's good enough, to get to the point of, gee, this is an absolutely fantastic community. What are you most proud of your legacy as a mayor? I think probably three different things come to mind, Nate. One is the strategic planning process that we went through. And we had hundreds of people, frankly, engaged in the process of looking at all the different components of the community, where we are, where we should be, and what we can do to get there together. That was late in my uh, mayoral career. And unfortunately, other people didn't see the value of that, so probably never went much beyond the fact that it was a pretty darn good plan. <laughs> uh, second one uh, was breaking down barriers. Chuck Oberly was mayor of Michigan City when I was mayor here. And through the years, the two mayors had never communicated. The two communities were absolutely divorced from each other. I'm told that when they went to meetings, they never spoke to each other. They sat on opposite sides of the room. And Mayor Oberly and I decided very early on, that's not right for the future. We've got to be together. And we worked very hard to bring these two communities together. So I'm proud of that. Uh, we also brought together a structure where we looked at infrastructure in LaPorte County. 
county was involved, the Indiana Department of Transportation was involved, NERPSI was involved, the Northwest Indiana Forum was involved, and we looked at what is the what are the needs of this county and how can we make sure that we identify those priorities and then work together to make them happen. But th- there had never been a coming together that way. We looked at things as silos. And so what we ended up with, Michigan City was willing to support needs that the city of LaPorte felt was important, and we did theirs. And together, we came up with a countywide effort. Next thing was the work we did to create Newport Landing. There had been some work done before my administration, but really the, the major effort of thinking through what that can be, how it can have impact on the future of this community came during our time. What process, when you became mayor, had the city already, did the city own that land already? Part of it. Was part of your uh, goals for that is to acquire the rest of it? Acquire it all and clear it and deal with the environmental issues that were there. I can still remember a city attorney, Art Rule, and I walking through that site once we've got control of it to be able to really see firsthand what it was we had to deal with to get those buildings under control and to get it ready for development. I'll tread lightly a little bit here. Did you think that more would be done out there by now? Oh, my goodness, yes. Now, obviously, there were some economic factors that had impact during that time. But I I felt like we kind of lost the vision for a while of what Newport Landing could really be. And there was an anxiousness to maybe just fill it with anything. Uh, And I I think that's being rethought. I'm glad to see it being rethought because to get it to, to have the positive impact on the community, we have to do it in a very thoughtful way. I'm hoping that in the the redevelopment of downtown LaPorte, there's a solid plan for how we recreate a downtown that becomes an attractive shopping area to bring people to it. Valparaiso has done it. Goshen has done it. Kokomo has done it. And we can, but we can't do it unless there's a real intentional plan. Did you then think about the bypass going through? Was that a, a component of that? I never allowed it to be referred to as a bypass in my presence. It is a new economic development corridor because, in my opinion, that's what it will turn out to be if it gets done. If you look at uh, what's happened as a result of uh, State Road 49 in the Valparaiso area, once it bypassed, if you will, it opens up new areas for economic development, which we lack right now, with good highway access. The vision isn't just a road going nowhere. No, and it Um, isn't just relieving the traffic in downtown LaPorte, which I think is an important thing to do. But the really driving force for a new economic development around LaPorte is to create new areas areas for economic development and job creation to occur. And obviously, right, I mean, the challenge there is it has to go through land. And we all like the idea unless we own the land. I fully understand the sensitivity to that. We were fortunate. uh, Congressman Chicola, during my administration, was able to get us a federal grant to study the possibility of a new economic development around LaPorte and to evaluate the different options so that we could try to do it in a way that was least destructive to the property owners and other functions in the county. And I I think that was well thought through, and I hope it's still being considered as they think about that opportunity again today. Did you also try to focus on county government as well? Certainly did. Matter of fact, we we were kind of fortunate. Mayor Oberly and I, uh, as we had a wonderful relationship, we were able to develop that same rapport with some county officials at that time. And I think really broke down some barriers that had been there for a long time. But we began thinking about, for example, we have three detective agencies in LaPorte County, and they do some good work. But what if we created one unified detective bureau in LaPorte County where we could really have the training and the expertise to deal with unique and difficult situations? Could that be an improvement? We kind of thought so. We looked at parks and recreation. We've got uh, at least three parks and recreation departments in the county. And we've got some wonderful parks. But could we do a better job if we brought those, the leadership of those parks together under a, a unified intergovernmental relationship and got the, the unique expertise and management uh, that would maybe enable us to get to a higher level with parks and recreation, and so on. We began talking about the different opportunities that could be there that we felt we really should explore. Thank you.
what are some things that you really think you left on the table that you didn't get done that you wanted to or that you just or maybe you think ah, we just really shouldn't have done that probably i was pushing too hard and too fast for change this is not a community that has been comfortable with with change we didn't have to be when you think back to what we had in the way of an industrial base and so on we didn't have to uh, worry about change Maybe I should have worked harder at partnering with the city council on some issues than I did. I don't know. I'm so envious of the city council we have today. I think we've got some great people on city council that are really thinking in major positive terms about the future. You run for re-election in 2004 mm-hmm. and you don't win. 2-8. 2-7, actually. Two, two, 2007, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would never run for election because I don't, I don't think I have the emotional fortitude to do yeah. it, right? That, that is really hard. How did you process that? Uh, really very well, because I didn't, I, I wanted to be reelected because I really think any mayor ought to have the opportunity to have two terms. It takes the first term to really get oriented, to understand how everything works together and to identify where the, the strong points are, where the concerns are. And then it's the second term when you're not worrying about re-election, that you can really do some very positive things. And I, I regretted that I didn't have the chance to do that. But I said, okay, you know, when I did this job, I wanted to do it right, and I would do it for as long as the voters wanted me to. And if they didn't want me to, I'll go on and do something else. That's a uh, remarkably stable and well-adjusted approach to that that I wouldn't have had. I think you'd have to come and get me out of my bed <laughs> nah, months later. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, so um, after that, were you the chair of the LaPorte County Republican Party for a while? I was, but not then. Okay. Uh, after that, uh, I had the opportunity to um, serve as first the executive director of the Indiana Toll Road. Uh, the governor had just been engaged in the leasing of the toll road. And so he contacted me and said, I'd like to have you do a couple of things. Uh, I'd like for you to be the uh, executive director of the Indiana Toll Road. And I'd like you to be the chairman of the board of the Northwest Indiana Regional Development Authority. And I admit that I'm getting two jobs done for one money. And he was right. But I had the great opportunity then to work with him and his administration as the leasing of the toll road came about. My job was to make sure that the new operator of the toll road conformed with all of the terms of the lease and to make sure that the state of Indiana got the benefit. Do you think it's equally as great today or do you think there needs to be a reworking of the deal? I don't know because I'm not familiar with the specific terms of the recent transaction between the state and the toll road operator. I know that the first transaction was clearly in the benefit of the state of Indiana. It turned out to bankrupt the new operator, and that's the reason, (laughs) because it was so beneficial to the state of Indiana. They had assumed uh, interest rates and what have you that didn't turn out to their advantage. So uh, I I don't really know the full terms of the new agreement between the state and the toll road operator. A little concerned about the fact that it ended up with a huge increase in tolls for truckers on the toll road. And I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that that may result in the diversion of a lot of truck traffic from the toll road to US 20, US 30. Going and, through some of the US municipalities. 6, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then that adds to the burden of the state of Indiana to maintain those routes. And we deal with additional congestion. The other part of that job was chairman of the board of the Northwest Indiana Regional Development Authority, which was a huge step forward for, for Indiana, particularly Northwest Indiana. And I served in that role for the next six years. What, what does the Northwest Indiana Regional Development Authority do? First of all, I know, I'm yeah, sure, yeah, but yeah. well, for anybody listening. It had, it had several priorities that were given to it by the state of, by the state of Indiana. Number one, the development of the Gary Chicago International Airport. Number two, Two, the development of the uh, Lake Michigan shoreline in northwest Indiana. Number three, regional public transportation in northwest Indiana. And number four, economic development for northwest Indiana. They've done some things. The, the Regional Development Authority has done things that were would not be possible for any individual community to, to do. I, I talked to my friend Joe Tahura, Stahura, who is mayor of Whiting. And if you were to go back and look at Whiting 20 years ago and then look at Whiting today, you wouldn't recognize it as the same community. And it's all because of the investment 
that the Northwest Indiana Regional Development Authority has made to help them re-establish that community. What happened to the Gary Airport? Why is it not that third major hub that we were all hoping for in Northwest or in the Chicago land area? Well, stay tuned. I think it's going to be. But what's hap- why hasn't it happened before now? Several things. Number one, anything you do with the city of Gary is difficult. And they've had a very, we had a very difficult board situation uh, where we provided funding from the RDA for the developments and those developments have been completed and they are the facilitator for Gary Chicago International Airport to become a major economic hub. The, the lo- runway has now been extended. It is much longer than anything around. It can handle any size of jet in the, in the country. The president can fly into yep. the Gary Chicago International Airport today. The crosswind runway has now been rebuilt. The terminal has been rebuilt. What hasn't happened yet is scheduled airline services. In the meantime, however, general aviation has more than doubled at the Gary Chicago International Airport. You still have hope that oh, this is going to really... No question. Okay. And I believe commercial aviation will come. The attractiveness of the city of Gary as a place for boarding a plane is an issue we have to keep working on. There is nothing about the physical attributes of the Gary Chicago Airport that will hold it back from development. It now takes a much stronger effort to market Gary as an acceptable location to board and, and dis board, if I may use that term, a plane. We also need to get better public transportation access to the Gary Chicago International Airport. South Shore train stops there, but it's in the backyard of the Gary Chicago Airport with no physical way to get to the airport other than walking. here we have a a region of a million people Mm -hmm. right in this little northwest indiana corridor Mm -hmm. we don't have a central hub though right that's it we've got these little culturally distinct cities of 15 to Mm -hmm. 70 thousand people and no driver of it all that's right 53 units of local government in northwest indiana do you think that's a fairly major detriment to what's happening in the region, or do you think it's it's just a small hurdle that we all need to get by? I don't think it's a small hurdle, but it's a hurdle we can get by. I think continuing to work to break down the silos in government, just like we were talking earlier about the city of Michigan City and the city of LaPorte and LaPorte County working together in a unified way. We've made some real progress through the years. I'm not involved in a, in a lot of that progress, but there's real progress that's been made. There's a lot more that we can do, and I think continuing to work on that. NERPSI, the Northwest Indiana Regional Planning Commission is a council of governments for Northwest Indiana. And I've long felt that they have a bigger role than they've played in helping us to work through this issue of how do we break down silos? How do we get units of local government working together more effectively? How can we develop a greater regional vision for the future that all of us can commit to. Don't you think, though, we need to have the some kind of shared identity, though? You know, if you're uh, anywhere within a, a 30 miles radius from Chicago, you feel like you're a yeah. Chicagoan or South Bend. You're, you know, you're from South Bend. But. We have a bigger problem in that regard in LaPorte County than we do in the rest of Northwest Indiana. LaPorte County has never been able to figure out what our regional Uh, identity is or should be. Is it with Northwest Indiana, with Porter and Lake Counties, for example? Or is it with South Bend, North Central Indiana? And in the process of not deciding that, we don't get the benefit of either of those relationships. We're not committed in either direction. And I don't think you can really do, really gain that benefit until you make a commitment. There are a lot of things in my mind that really bind Laporte County to Northwest Indiana. Time zones, transportation, migration, commuting patterns in Northwest Indiana, the fact that much of our funding is done on a regional basis and most of those regions are Northwest Indiana. On the other hand, there are some things that bind us in a way to South Bend. So, But I think we've got to make a commitment one way or the other. LaPorte County should have been in the Regional Development Authority, in the RDA, and they had the opportunity to be. They chose not to. Again, I don't think they could decide, are we really Northwest Indiana? Mm-hmm. Or, so we're not going to do anything. And as a result, you know, the 
the investment that's been made as a result of the RDA in North with Porter and Lake counties, I think they've gotten about a ten to ten dollar to one dollar return on that investment, which is pretty darn good. And but Laporte County's got nothing. roughly, or 40, 50 years of healthcare administration mm -hmm. experience. Obviously, we're having these national conversations on where healthcare goes. You know, we've got uh, some competing vision nationally. I think there's also some no vision. I agree. <laughs> um, what's some of the biggest things that have changed? And going forward, what do you think are some of the first things they have to fix? You know, we have gained so many capabilities in healthcare. I've often thought about uh, when Holy Family Hospital was here in, in Laporte and somebody had a heart attack. They got thrown in the back of a hearse and hauled to the hospital and they got put in a patient room and the nuns were there and they prayed for them and maybe put some oxygen on, but that was about all that they could do. But you know, it was very inexpensive. The outcomes weren't very good, but it was inexpensive. But today, what we're capable of doing is remarkable but it's also incredibly expensive. We have never come to grips with the fact that we probably can't provide everything for everybody in healthcare. And I draw the parallel between healthcare and public education. We do not guarantee everybody a PhD level education in this country. It would be great if they could do it. They probably would have better income and better quality of life, but we can't afford it but we can guarantee K through 12 education for every American. I think we have to do the same thing in healthcare. So what does that look like? I think we have to figure out what is a basic entitlement in healthcare. In Oregon, they did exactly that. In Oregon, they said, let's figure out how much money we can provide for publicly funded healthcare in Oregon. That's the dollar amount we have. Then they put together a group of people the finest minds they could find to say, how can we spend that amount of money to do the greatest good for the most Oregonians? And so they, they really costed out all the different procedures that they could spend that money for. And then they drew a line where they had committed it all. And they said, okay, we're going to guarantee everybody in Oregon up to this point, all the things that we could spend money on, that, that's their entitlement. Everything above that line, we will not do. For example, organ transplants are not publicly funded in Oregon. A newborn infant that has no possibility of a quality of life, they will not pay to prolong the life of that. For a woman who has breast cancer, they will pay for the best breast surgery to remove the tumor, but they will not pay for breast reconstructive surgery. It's tough because you're really saying to those people for whom the funding is not available, sorry folks, you're not going to be helped. But we've never been honest about that entitlement. Uh, we basically say, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't, maybe there'll be access, maybe there won't. I think we got to be honest about it and say we, as a country, we will guarantee a basic level of care for everybody in this country. How's it going to Oregon? It's going well. Um, they, they've done really, I think, a, a great job. Oregon is so progressive in so many ways. They've dealt with the end-of-life issues in Oregon in, in better ways than most of the rest of the country. I'm one who believes that an individual should have control over the end of their life. In Oregon, that's been guaranteed, and it's worked exceptionally well. I, I've written a couple of articles call, I call The Tale of Two Ladies, and I deal with a, a lady that I knew here in Laporte, just a remarkable, wonderful person who had uh, developed cancer and went through an awful, awful death process. She hadn't made any commitments about what was to be done, and they prolonged her life and prolonged her life. And she was disfigured and, and had lost all of her mental capacity and such a burden on her family. And then I talked about Pearl, my wonderful black lab who developed an uncurable illness, and we had to bid her goodbye. She had a peaceful and calm death. Mm -hmm. But my good friend, uh, the human person, the human lady in that two-lady uh, story, had a terrible death and agony for her family. 
we got to do better than that. In Indiana, we have a proposal that says an individual should have the right to determine when they wish to die, and they, and they alone, are the ones that can cause that death to occur. Is so, that going to get anywhere? We can't get a hearing in the Indiana General <laughs> Assembly. No, and that's one of the things I've, I'm, I'm really angry about, that one person, the chairman of a committee, can refuse to allow even a hearing. Who, who's bill. bringing this hearing? Uh, the, who's bringing this bill? It's a group called um, uh, Com- Care and Compassion, a national organization. But they've got a lot of other local groups that are supporting it as well. And wonderful legislation that's been put together, very similar to Oregon's uh, legislation. And year after year, it gets into the General Assembly, but the chairman of the committee will not allow a hearing to be held. I think they ought to be able to mandate a hearing. That doesn't mean that it'll be passed, but at least they ought to be willing to consider a legitimate legislative proposal. What do you think is the state of politics right now? Oh, it's terrible. Terrible. We, you know, we have deteriorated to a a most unfortunate point, in my opinion. You know, I did moderate a a candidate forum in Michigan City last night, as a matter of fact, and I came away from that forum so encouraged because we've got some wonderful, wonderful people who are running for office here on both sides. On both sides. I was so impressed, and I said to myself, leaving there, this gives you hope for the future. But when you look at some of the other crapola that is going on in the politics, and I listened to the hearings today from the congressional hearings today, and I didn't feel very good about what I heard there either. Uh, and we miss the people who are who put the interests of the country above their either personal political interests or their partisan politics interests. I'm I'm one who, who admired Senator John McLean, McCain. Significantly, because I felt he did that, and he did it. He did it well. Can guys like Richard Luger? I know you like. Oh, Richard I love Luger. Richard Luger. Just um, listen to him again this week, as a matter of fact. And I know many Democrats in Indiana that loved Richard Luger. Yeah. Can you be that politician still? Do you think that you can say, you know what? I can serve both groups mm-hmm. of people. I asked the question, why not? What is it that would prevent that from happening? I'm one who, who thinks that our current governor is, is coming close to, to being that kind of, of politician. I was concerned uh, about him. I've known him for 20 years, maybe. I, I was a little concerned that he might be uh, uh, a little weak in the job. But I think he's done a great job. And I think he's been very nonpartisan in his approach. I'm, I'm so proud to, to see him do that. But there, he's the exception. But I can't see why, why it's not possible. I know one of our difficulties is this 24-hour-a-day news commentary and reporting situation. Not only just the news reporting, right? Because I I think we only have so much capacity to intake, but also the punditry. Yeah. Forms opinions Mm -hmm. before the story's even written. Yep. I love to listen to NPR on my radio. I'm on the road a lot with the, the job I'm doing and so on. And every once in a while, NPR has something I'm not interested in, so I try to listen to MSNBC or CNN. I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just this constant, wah, 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 wah. And I, I think that really contributes to a, a, a deterioration of, of statesmanship in our political process. You don't have to be the same to be unified, right? No, um, no, no. My grandfather, uh, both of my grandfathers were both Democrats, JFK Democrats. My dad's a would lean Republican. And my dad and my grandfather were the closest. They were mm-hmm. they were business partners, best friends. Mm-hmm. They used to fight all the time about politics, but they loved each oh, other. Oh, yeah. And I think one of the hard things anymore now is, again, and maybe I'm all wrong on this, but we can't even agree on the facts anymore. It's hard to come to um, say, okay, what policies do we agree on? Mm-hmm. Or how, what, how, do, how do we form policies together when we can't even agree on the mm-hmm. facts? And so that becomes a really hard way to navigate going forward when you you're not even saying the world is looks the same. You would think that, okay, there's these issues. Let's say there's there's climate change. Well, the scientists tell us there's climate change, there's climate change. So then what we might disagree on is what's the best policies to meet that or mm-hmm. to deal with that? Mm-hmm. 
we can't even get to that point anymore. No, no really can't. You know, uh, the leaders of our country have a special responsibility in this regard. The tone that they set, I think, has great influence. One of the, one of the burdens of being a leader uh, of any organization, whether it's a company or a country, the language that you use, the demeanor that you have, the values that you express, the ethics that you uh, follow have a huge impact on the entire country. You know, I think our current president, for example, in my opinion, has done some some good things. Uh, he's delivered on a lot of things that he said he would do. I'm really concerned, though, about the, the example that he sets. It's more than just the things you do. No, it, it has to be. It's how you do things. It's it's what what example you are setting for people that you expect to, em- you want them to emulate the qualities that you uh, are ex- exemplifying. That really concerns me right now. And I think that's, that's true of a, a lot of our, our political leaders today. I'd like, to, I'd like to see that change. But, you know, the other thing that concerns me, and this is your, your field is, is religion, I'm really concerned about the fact that we don't have enough influence from religious leaders in these days. If you think about the influence that Bishop Fulton Sheen had on this country, that uh, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, and the list goes on. We had religious leaders that were really listened to and had major influence and impact on this country. Where are they today? Uh, this, this turned around to interviewing me, and I can go a long time on, on this. Uh, they're there. I mean, there are some people there. I'm, they're not the ones I went there. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, there, there, there are some there. Uh, I think the church is trying to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got these huge divides between evangelical mainline as you are yep. and Roman Catholic and scandals and all these kind of things. And I think it's just a, a, a reworking of values, a reworking of how to live these values out. Cause we don't. And I, and I think, I, I think to get back to kind of what you're saying in that there's one thing to say orthodoxy, right? Mm-hmm. The things that we believe to be mm-hmm. true. Now, you might be a, a, you are a Republican. You might even say, I like some of the things Donald Trump has done. But then there's a whole other level of practicing your faith that is orthopraxy. And I would argue as well, so the way you practice your faith as well. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the orthopathos, the way you feel about your faith in the world around you. Mm-hmm. And I think those really have to align well for a really robust and well-practiced mm-hmm. faith. What I, I see anyway, and again, um, I critique it as firmly entrenched as a member of the faith, is that I think people have called the church out and religious leaders for not having those aligned real well. Mm -hmm. There's been some defensive posturing, finger pointing, instead of looking inward and saying, you know what, you might Mm -hmm. be right. And so I'm hoping anyway that that's not the case anymore. I'm hoping that there's some young religious leaders that do good for their community. One of the reasons why we planted this church was we wanted to do good for our community. And I I would like to give you and and, uh, the work that you and Father Paul Nesta and others have done in this community has has been really wonderful. And, and we really have benefited from the approach that you're taking. And you know, I do a little preaching myself. Yeah, I know you, you know, do, yeah. uh, One of the sermons I prepared recently was called One Man's Family. And I go back to an old radio program, the longest-running radio serial in history called One Man's Family. And I talk about the fact that the family values were so different in those days. And the churches today, in my opinion, have both the opportunity and I believe the obligation to help replace some of the values that we've lost from family life in this country. It's the family of the church that becomes almost a replacement for the family values that were so positive in the 1930s and, and, and that era. They're, they're, many of them are gone today. We, we just don't have that belonging and sense of togetherness and, and a sense of common values today. I think belonging is a great word for that, that you you can have a family. And, and some of us, again, I, I speak universally here and I shouldn't. Some people don't have families mm-hmm. like this. But many of us have families where, you know what, Thanksgiving's going to be a dinner time and not all of us are going to agree on everything. Mm-hmm. Not all of us, we're going to argue over politics. Right. But we're going to break bread together mm-hmm. and we're going to share wine together mm-hmm. and we're going to love that we have each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the church ought to reclaim that. Yep. The problem is, is when we've 
put some walls up between who is in and who is in, who is out. We've said, yes, the church can be a place to belong. And as far as you look and act and talk like us, and what that has done is then it's made a significant group of people, especially younger people, say, wait a second, what if I don't believe that? Mm-hmm. What if I, I, I'm not convicted or if, if I'm not... Um, seeing eye to eye with mm-hmm. you there do i still have a place at the table mm-hmm. at thanksgiving and i think maybe even implicitly because i i think most churches are uh, kind to a fault almost and they wouldn't say it uh explicitly but implicitly there's this understanding that no you don't until you align with us in theology and in doctrine and politics and in culture and in all these things, you don't have a place here. And so I'm hoping that the church can reclaim this, yes, right? Yes, I do too. Uh, John Wesley had this vision that the church should be at the center of every community, being the cultural, political, uh, religious, and uh, hub of a community and, and allowing people to come in the doors and work out their faith. But also, if you're hungry, we feed you. If you're mm-hmm. sick, we help you. Mm-hmm. If you're lonely, we bring you community regardless of who you are exactly right yeah. um, and and I hope the church does reclaim that I, and I, I I think if the church has a future it's gonna be in that I, I agree with you um, and it's not because uh, a lot of people say well what are you saying that Jesus doesn't want to No, I think that Jesus is very serious about the church continuing but and the church's lack of influence is not because of something that Christ uh, has mm-hmm. has desired it's because mm-hmm. I think we've mismanaged the calling that he's given us take it away from religion real quick as a republican yes most people aren't members of parties younger people even more so because we have a harder time i think i have a harder time saying i'm anything (laughs) committing to a label is i don't know what it is it's hard and plus i i want to vote for the people i really think is going to do a good job whether it's Mm -hmm. this r or d or whatever right um however in order to further yourself politically, you really kind of have to pick a party. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, you unless do. you're in Vermont as a senator. If somebody was wanting, young people, because I know this is a passion of yours as well. If young people want to get involved in politics or the political process or civic life, what do they do there? How do they do it? Who do they talk to? If they're interested in perhaps uh, running for office at some point, I really think they have to probably affiliate with one of the parties. They're not necessarily Republican or Democrat. We've got libertarian party in this community that is a, is a viable and vital group as well. And then influence the direction of that party. And I think that's a that's a lost opportunity that maybe many people don't realize. You have leaders of those parties, but those leaders can be influenced significantly by the membership of the party. Being a committee, a precinct committeeman, for example, you then become a part of the central committee of the party. Therefore, you have uh, influence and uh, can help with the direction of the party. Uh, I think that party affiliation helps you to learn about the the ground rules, how to how to move ahead, what the relationships are, the things you need to contend with in order to be active in in the political process. Other thing is, uh, you've got the chambers of commerce that usually have a governmental affairs group. Laporte's does, I know. Then we have in Laporte County something called the Better Government Study Group that I've been a part of from the inception. That's a great opportunity for people to come learn about the political process, have influence and direction, and uh, you don't have to commit to any particular party affiliation to be involved with that. The League of Women Voters is a great group. Uh, and it says women in there, but men are welcome. I've been a member for a long, long time, uh, and they do a lot of good work. They conduct our political forums, for example, in, in Laporte County. They help with registration significantly, but they really encourage people to get engaged in the political process. So those are a few, a few things, I think, that could be helpful to a, a young person, and I hope we can attract a lot more of them. Well, we'll end here. In a, uh, one more question, though. What inspires you? Oh, what inspires me is, uh, is the opportunity to be engaged and involved and to make a positive difference. I, I can't imagine uh, just sitting back and not doing anything. Uh, I'm 83 years old. Uh, I don't feel like I'm 83 years old, uh, and I don't intend to. Uh, as long as I can go and be engaged and involved, that's what really inspires me to be. And I love being with people. I love working with people. 
I think just making the opportunity to make a positive difference. So in 45 years, Lee Morris passes away, God uh-huh. forbid. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, what, what do you want them to say was Lee Morris's legacy? Oh, I don't know. The thing that's, uh, I'm the proudest of, no doubt, is, is the development of LaPorte Hospital. Uh, that, that was the, the, the marvelous part of my career. Um, I think maybe just they would be able to recognize that, hey, he did make a, a difference in this community in, in a few ways. It would be great. I don't, I'm not looking forward to that, so I don't know. Well, you know what? In 45 plus years, when that happens, I'll make sure that's set, okay? <laughs> Thanks, Nate. <laughs> All right, Lee. Hey, uh, will you come back on sometime again? Love to. All so it's right. been great talking with you, Nate. Yeah. I enjoyed it immensely, and I, I'm so proud of the things that you're doing to help make this a better community because you are making a positive difference. Hey, shucks. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for listening, and uh, I want to thank my guest, Lee Morris. Thanks for being here. Okay, bye now.